Let's start reading verse 19 of chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And it says in verse 19, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, he talked about the confidence that we could have, that the Old Testament didn't really have that confidence because their priests continued to die and their sacrifices had to be repeated every year. So it was actually a reminder of their sin. But he says, we have that confidence. And then he also says, since we have a great priest over the house of God, in verse 21. And then because of those two things, this great high priest that we have, and he is the reason for our confidence, because we have those two things, he began to tell us what it was that he wanted us to do. Or what, uh, as we looked at it last week, just the logical next step for us is to do. The logical step for these people that were tempted to fall away was to actually draw near to Jesus. You won't find anything better than Him. The logical step for these people is to hold fast their confession of faith. And those are the two things that we looked at last week. He says, let us draw near, let us hold fast. And then today we want to look at just that third one. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. If I could put this into one word, I would say that the point that he's making here is is faithfulness. But it's changed a little bit. See, the first two words, by drawing near to God, holding fast to God, he's dealing with faithfulness there too, but his faithfulness right there is really directed toward God. Sometimes I run into people that say they don't really believe in going to church and things like that because I believe that my relationship with God is a personal thing. Well, your relationship with God should be a personal thing. There is no way to have a relationship that's not personal. But our relationship with God should also be interpersonal. There's two aspects of our relationship to God. There's a vertical one where we relate directly to Him, and there's a horizontal one, which is how we treat other people. We see that all over the place. We see that when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He he didn't stop at the greatest. He says, the greatest is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. But the second one is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. He would not leave off the second one, even though He was only asked for the first. The Ten Commandments, we find the same thing. The first four commandments deal with their relationship with God, directly, vertical, having no other gods before me, not taking His name in vain, no graven images. The other six of the commandments deal with a horizontal aspect. Don't murder somebody. Don't steal. Don't be dishonest or bear false witness. Don't covet other people's belongings. Honor your father and your mother. And so there's a horizontal aspect to it as well. You cannot really separate your relationship with God from your relationship with other people. Your relationship with other people should be impacted by your relationship with God and your relationship with God should be shared in your relationships with other people. Realize if nobody ever shared their relationship with God, you would not know Christ. I wouldn't know Him either. A lot of times we read through the Bible looking for little devotional things for us, something to help us through this day, help us through this situation, and we interpret everything personally. A lot of the truths that were given in God's Word were given not just personally, but corporately. In other words, those were letters that were sent not to individuals, but to churches. And some of them were sent to individuals, but they were individuals who were leaders of the churches. And so they were expected to be carried out in a corporate way, in a, in a body of Christ kind of way, not just as individuals. 
And that's what we look at as we see this passage. He's, he's telling them in the first two things. He's saying, look, you need to be faithful to God. It's actually what he's been telling them since the beginning of Hebrews. Look at who Jesus Christ is. He's superior to angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to Aaron and the priesthood. He's superior to everything. So do what? Don't fall away from Him. Draw near. Be faithful. Be committed. Hold fast that confession. Now He's going to continue to say the same thing, but with a little different focus, a focus horizontal. He's saying, look, you need to continue to be faithful, but be faithful where? To one another. To be faithful in the church. And that's what we're going to consider this morning is this kind of faithfulness. Now, there's three ways, or maybe I should have picked a little bit different word for that. Three ways, because these are not independent ways. They build on one another. In other words, we should have all of these ways. It's not pick one of these ways to be faithful. It's all of these things should be, all of these ways should be exercised by us as believers. The first way that we find is what I would call creative. We need to be creative. Notice he says consider. Let us consider how to stir up one another. I love that. Stir them up. He's saying, look, I want you to stir one another up. I want you to get each other moving. But the first thing he says, I want you to think about it. It's it's being thoughtful. It's about thinking about one another in an intentional way. In other words, I'm supposed to spend time, and I do, thinking about you. And you're supposed to spend time thinking about me and one another. All of us should be thinking about each other. I'd say say that this week a lot of thought went into Judy. A lot of thought went into Judy. And you want to know why? Because she's going through a hard time right now. And we want to be there for her in this struggle and in this time. And so there was a lot of time people spent praying. I also know there was a lot of people that stepped up and maybe made something and brought it over. Maybe reached out in different ways. Some that were very visible. Some that were not very visible. Some things were dropped off here for Judy. She probably doesn't even know who made it or brought it. But you know what? People are thinking, what what are things that would be an encouragement to her this week? What can I do to lighten her load? What can I do to strengthen her walk? How can I be there? That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're doing right when we do that. Even before this last week, I think it was a couple weeks ago, I thought about several things that I've seen in our church over the the last months. I'll share a little insight with you. I don't know, Chad, yesterday we were out at the lake and, and we were talking and he had shared something to me that he'd heard about pastors and he said, you know what, I never even thought about that, about about you guys. And he says, it just made me think a little bit. Well, I'm going to share with you something else today. You know, when you're, when you're a pastor and you're watching your church and you're get, gathering together on Sundays and you're worshiping and you're teaching and you're leading and, and that, those kind of things, you watch your church. It's, it's kind of like when I'm a parent. Well, I'm always a parent. But, but when I have my kids around, when I have my kids around, you know what I do? I watch my kids And I'm looking for things. I'm looking at how, not just my relationship with them, but I'm looking at their relationship with each other. And it warms my heart when I see one of my kids do something for my other kids. Or say something nice for my other kids. Or maybe not even for their sibling, for a nephew or a niece. Or When you're a parent, when your kids or your grandkids do something for one another that is really cool, that just warms your heart, doesn't it? Well, there's a little bit of that when you're a pastor too. When I watch my people, my church, my my family. When I watch them relate with one another, I see things. I see people maybe in a little group over talking or somebody that's going through a struggle and I know that this person's sharing with them, they're helping them or just different times of fellowship, different people sharing something that happened during their week and different joy that they experienced or a hardship that they went through. And those things, I, you, you kind of see those and you latch onto those, you, you recognize those and you're thankful to God for those things. A couple weeks ago, I was thinking in the last few months, I've seen so much of that in our church. 
I saw it in youth group this last week also. In youth group on Wednesday night, the kids were together and at the end of time, Zach had brought in some freeze pops that Lisa sent over with them and everybody grabbed a freeze pop and started eating them and so we stopped playing the game and they were just standing around eating freeze pops and just talking and they were laughing and sharing things and, and there was a fellowship and I got to the end of youth group and I thought, you know what, I'm not even going to tell them. I'm just enjoying this so much and I just sat there and watched it. And I did that until one of the kids finally said, well, can we leave? Is it time? I said, yeah, I said, go ahead. You know, it's past time. That's the kind of thing that he's calling us to. We need to be in that kind of relationships with one another in the household of God. We're God's family. And he says we need to consider how to stir up one another. Now, the first thing about that creativity is that creativity should be personal. He uses that phrase, one another. That's not an uncommon phrase through the Bible. There's a lot of one another commands, how we're supposed to be there for one another, reach out to one another, respond to one another. In other words, we're supposed to be part of one another's lives. It not only is it personal, but it's also purposeful. It has a purpose behind it. He says, you know, I want you to consider how you can stir one another up toward love and good works. The Apostle Paul, and I'm not convinced that that's who wrote Hebrews here, but the Apostle Paul, in a lot of his epistles, measured individuals and churches by three things. Faith, hope, and love. And the Thessalonian church was doing very good. And he starts off and talks about their work of faith and their labor of love, their patience of hope. But then he went on to strengthen their hope by giving them a better understanding of end times events. In the book of First Corinthians... These are people that were measuring themselves by very different things. They were measuring themselves by external things. Things that were more showy, speaking in tongues. And the Apostle Paul would tell them, let me show you a better way. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 13, he says, Now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these things is love. Well, the author of the book of Hebrews is doing something very similar here at this moment. Notice in our passage of the three let us commandments, the first let us commandment was let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. The second of these commandments was let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And the third one is let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. You know, Jesus said the greatest commandment was to love. He said that all the law is fulfilled in the one command, love your neighbor as yourself, love is to be a big part of our life and a big part of our focus. And that's what we want to stir one another up in love. That I love them more deeply. They love me more deeply. We love God more deeply. This is something that you just can't, we just cannot grow enough in. And so when we're encouraging people, there is a purpose in it. There is, a, there is an end goal. And it's to, to draw them toward the love of God in Jesus Christ. It's also good works. They're very important. A lot, of, a lot of times we can tend to kind of diminish good works because we're often arguing about their role in salvation. That we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace through faith. But you know what? It goes on to say we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. In fact, these works that God laid out in advance for us to do. James would say if we have a, a faith that doesn't also have works, that doesn't manifest works, then our faith is dead. It's empty. It's non-existent. Good works are a part of our life. They're not the part of the cause of our salvation. Our salvation is only by the grace of God. But as soon as we're saved, we work. Because that's the fruit of God saving us. That's the demonstration of what He's accomplished and is accomplishing in our lives. 
And so our creativity is to be not only personal, thinking about what each individual needs, but it's also purposeful. We're headed towards certain goals, love and good works. Also, we see it's to be consistent. When you think about it, it's kind of in the word, isn't it? How can we be inconsistently faithful? doesn't make any sense. It kind of spells it out all, on, all of its own. But we've got to be consistent in our faithfulness. We notice, first of all, that we need to be consistent in presence. Because it says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. For all the thinking that we might do about how we might stir one another up to love and good works, we cannot do that long distance. Those things have to be done in presence. I remember when I was considering coming up here, I remember thinking about the idea of coming up to such a rural community, a small town. And one of the things that really drew me toward going to small town ministry was the idea of knowing people. I remember reading a comment one time that said, you can impress people from a distance, but you can only impact them up close. In fact, I think in the Bible that I carried around at the time, I think I wrote it in one of the pages in the back. You can impress people from a distance, but you can only impact them up close. And you know what I thought about? I thought, in a small town, what opportunity there must be for impact. You're going to know more people. You know, when I lived in Seattle, you didn't hardly know the person right next door. When I lived in Owatonna, there was 22,000 people. Not a lot of difference. You did know more people. The community was smaller. You'd run into people you knew when you went places. When I, went to, when I lived in Seattle, it was an amazing thing if you ran into somebody you knew in a store. When I went to Owatonna, it was common to run into people that you know in the store. In Little Fork, it's unusual to run into somebody you don't know in a store. Right? It's just, it's just, it's just community. It's just tight. You gotta, and you can impact people when you're up close. You can't really impact people from a distance. And that's what he's telling us here. He says, look, in order to be this kind of person that stirs up one another, that's an encouragement to one another, we've got to be consistent in our presence. We've got to be there. We were talking about this a little bit with, uh, at youth group last week. I didn't do this to him. But I told him about it one time when I did. I remember way back, in fact, I think Tim was in the youth group back there. Donahue's kids were in the youth group back then, Tara and Tanya. Long time ago now. And I came into youth group one night and I said, you know what? Things are going to change. We're completely redoing how we do youth group. You know what we're going to do? We're not going to have youth group on Wednesday nights. We're going to have youth group Monday through Friday. We're going to have every night of the week. And I said, it's not going to be for an hour and a half. It's going to be for two and a half hours. And we're going to have projects that you're going to work on. And we're going to have assignments that you're going to do. And we're going to really dig into God's Word, which we're already doing that. And we're going to spend some concerted effort and and time in prayer. Not just a little bit of prayer. We're going to pray a lot. And we're going to do all these different things. And when I got done talking, their mouths were like, (laughs) their chin dropped wide open. I was encouraged this time because I was telling the youth group about it this time. And one of the kids, I don't remember which one it was, says, cool. And I was like, yes. But the first time, the time that I actually did it to the youth group, and they're looking at me like, wow. And I was speaking like I'm in it. And I got done, and they're like, really? And I said, let me ask you this. Of all the things that I just said we were going to do, did I demand anything of you that your football coach doesn't? Or your volleyball coach? Or your basketball coach? Or the drama director? Or a teacher? I said, how come we are so, we got it so programmed into us that I can't miss a practice. I've got to be there for my team. 
And that's why if you ever catch me talking to one of your teenagers, I say, hey, we missed you at youth group. And they say, I had homework. I don't let them off. God's more important. You need to get there. You need to be there. And so I'm not just being mean to your kid. I'm being mean with a purpose. I want them at youth group. I want, I want them in God's word collectively. But you know what? Why is it? Why do, why do, we, why do we do that? Why do we, I've got to be there for my team. Can't miss a practice. Can't miss this. Can't miss a game. Can't miss that. It's a football game. Youth group, see ya. Got to go. No, I'm not saying they all miss it willy-nilly. We've got a good group of kids. But I'm saying there's some things programmed into us. I think some wrong priorities maybe. There's some things that we're some things that we drop too easy, and some things that we're not going to drop that we probably should be willing to forego a little bit. The reason we ended up talking about that is we watched a video this last week, and this girl had been in competition cheering for uh, since she could just above when she could walk, and she was in high school in cheering on a cheering team, supposed to go to a big tournament, and she missed that tournament to go on a mission trip. And we're talking about that decision that she made. God's people, God's church, that's God's program. This is what He has put together and His will has determined that He would shape our lives through it. We're God's team. And so when you think about it, if, if we're going to bail out, we're, we're bailing out on God's team. We're not going to be there. It's just like when I was on a team, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying you should, you should miss practices or you should miss. You should be committed. If you're on a team, you should be committed. You should be there. But it's not our only team. We should have that kind of devotion towards God's team. Be committed to God's team. Now, does that mean you can never miss church? No, I'm not saying that you can never miss church. You know, about once a year I miss church to go on a vacation with my family or something. If I go traveling where I'm visiting family, we usually go to church somewhere else. But sometimes I go, in fact, this year I'm going to go out on an island and some of our kids that live farther away, we don't get the time with them unless it's over a weekend and so we're going to not be here in church for that. And so I think that there's appropriate times to, to miss something. But you know what? When everything seems to bump it, we've got a problem. When it's easily missed for so many different functions that come our way, then I think our priorities maybe get a little bit out of whack. Let's just consider a few things. If you make it to every worship service, then that's 52 times, 52 worship services in a year. Now our worship services run about an hour and 15 minutes. And so that's a little over 60 hours in a year. Stop and think about that. Sixty hours that we spend corporately with one another, learning about God's Word and singing songs of praise and fellowship with one another. We put in that much time in about a week and a half of work. If you have a child that's on one sports team where they practice about two and a half hours a day, Monday through Friday, that means that if they're in church every week, on that one sports team, they will have spent more time learning that sport in five and a half weeks than they will in the whole year learning the things of the Word of God. I remember the first time I thought those things through and I thought, that makes Sunday morning pretty valuable to me. When I look at all the time that I spend doing different things compared to the amount of time that I spend all gathered together corporately with uh, other believers in Christ, with my church family, it made me realize how important that time is. We can't be there and impact one another if we're not there. But that's not really the focus of the whole thing either. It's not just about being there. The command here really isn't church attendance. The command is really about what you do when you are there. And so he says that it's also in performance. Because you notice he says not neglecting the assembling of ourselves together. In other words, we need to be there. But what is the opposite of neglecting? 
And the word neglecting, by the way, is a different word than is found in, remember up in chapter 2, we talked about those, how should we escape if we neglect such great salvation? That, that, word, that word neglect in chapter 2 means to think light of, to just kind of space it out, not pay much attention to it. This word neglect here means more of an abandonment, a turning away from. These people that were being persecuted for their faith were looking at turning away from the church, abandoning the church, walking away from the church. You know what? God's people love God's people. And so if, if you're God's people, it's just natural for you to be an active part of the church, and that's your church home, that's your church family, they're important to you. And he's really what he's doing is in the midst of the warnings about apostasy that he just recently did, and he's about to go into next week, he's going to say, as we look, the passage we look at next week, he's saying, look, if you can walk away from the church, it's just a sign of your walking away from Christ. It's a sign of your apostasy there. So it was a, it was a serious decision that these people were, were making. But what is the opposite of neglecting? The opposite of neglecting is encouraging. Encouraging one another. In other words, the point he's making is that when we gather together, he wants us gathering together with purpose, and our purpose is to be an encouragement to one another, to promote that love and good works. Even your presence here is an encouragement. I'll tell you what, when people see one another in church, that's instantly encouraging. I see it all the time. I experience it all the time. When I'm here and somebody comes walking in the door, I'm always glad for every person that I see, oh, good, they're here today. Oh, good, they're here today. Oh, good, they're here today. And when somebody's not here or not here for a couple weeks or something like that, then I miss them. It's encouraging to me when they're there. Not only the individual thing, but the collective thing. You know, when the, when the church is full, people are kind of buzzing. And people are, there's kind of an excitement in the air. When the church is empty, the opposite happens. It feels kind of, where is everybody? I remember when we were working with a new church start out in Washington State once years ago. We rented a building that was much too big for the size of the group that we had. You could fit the group in about these first four pews right here, and the auditorium size was one and a half times what we have here at least. And you know what? It was really hard to get over the atmosphere because you'd come in, and even if everybody was there that was going to church at that time, it felt like you were just small. Just by your very presence here, you are and encouragement, but it's not supposed to stop there. He said we should be coming in here with a goal of encouraging one another. You know, we're Americans, and the American way today is kind of convenience, and it's about things that we can have at our disposal rather quickly. And so I know I've heard people talk and I've and, and heard conversations before about, well, you know what, I can miss church because I've got this devotion going on in my life. I've got this maybe radio program that I'm listening to, or I've got this Bible study that I'm working through, you're missing the point. That's, that's not church. You see, when you come into church, now I truly hope you gain something from it. I'm working hard to try to make sure you are encouraged, and we, we want you to be encouraged. But you know what? When we come into church, our focus should not be about us. We're not a consumer here. We're a participant. We're not coming in here to say, well, what am I going to get out of this? And you know what? You will never get as much out of church until you start putting into it. When you start trying to be an impact and be an encouragement and, and what can, how can I benefit somebody else, you'll get so much more out of church than you ever thought about getting before. The primary focus is not just our being gathered together. We've got to do that, but that's just so that we can do the second part, which is to be an encouragement one to another. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, he says, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called the day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
So he'd already told us earlier in the book of Hebrews that we really need one another. We need the encouragement, the exhortation that we get from one another to keep us from being hardened in, in our sin. Throughout the New Testament, he tells us to encourage one another in many different ways. In Romans chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, he says, For I long to see you, that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. The Apostle Paul is saying, look, I long to be with you. You know why? Because I want to encourage you. And I know that encouraging you, you're going to encourage me. Our faith is going to uplift one another. That was his goal. Romans chapter 15 and verse 5. So toward the end of the same book, it says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. You see, when we're encouraging one another, we're manifesting an attribute of God. Because he is the God of encouragement. Colossians chapter 4 verse 8 says, I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 18, he says, Therefore encourage one another with these words. He just told them about the order of events that's going to happen toward the end time with the resurrection and then the rapture. And he says, you need to encourage one another with these things. And just a little bit after that, he says, Therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We need to be that encouragement toward one another. We need to be consistent in our faithfulness toward one another. Consistent in our presence, that we're going to be there. We're not going to forsake the assembling, but what will be consistently a part of that assembling for the purpose of encouraging one another. And then lastly, our faithfulness toward one another should be climactic. Somebody once said, the whole of history is his story. And when you read through from the very beginning, we see where we're from and the end, where we go, where we're going to, where we're headed, and we see that there's a definite progress. He says that we should do it so much the more. In other words, our faithfulness should increase as we see that day approaching or as that day draws near. The day that he's talking about is what the Bible refers to as the day of the Lord. It encompasses two different things. It encompasses Christ coming back for his own and his receiving them up to be with him. It followed by his wrath being poured out and his judgment. Then that means that this climax has two different results. The first one is anticipation, and that's on our part. Those who are believing in Jesus Christ should be looking forward to that day, longing for that day when he will return and we will be with him. Why do we long for that day? Because we know that our sins are forgiven. We know that they're paid for. God has separated us from them as far as the east is from the west. Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. We're looking forward to being with Jesus Christ on that day. But at the same time, we know the judgment is coming, and so there is fear. And that's exactly, if we look at the, if we look at the context of this passage that we're looking at, look first of all at verse 19. Verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place. In other words, we have confidence in Entering the presence of God. So we ought to be anticipating the day that Christ returns. Looking forward to the day that Christ returns. And encouraging one another. Because we know it's coming. But now let's look at the next verse. The one that's going to start us off next week. Look at verse 26. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And he ends up saying it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
And so the point that he's making is, look, as we head toward the climax of human history when Jesus Christ comes back, he's going to come back to deliver his people and to judge the unbelieving world. And so there's two different responses. And so when he writes to these people, to this church, he's telling, look, those of you who are standing firm in your faith, those of you who are drawing near, those of you who are holding fast, those of you who are encouraging one another in love, anticipate the return of Christ and let it prompt you toward more of that. But he's also warning, and he's saying, those of you who are drawing back, those of you who are thinking of dropping your commitment, those of you who are forsaking the assembly, who are abandoning the church, he says, fear, because that fear should draw you to Christ. And so as we look at this, we need to be faithful. We need to be faithful to God, draw near to Him, hold fast. We need to be faithful to one another. Let's consider how we can stir each other up towards love and good works.